So I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles this morning. We're going to be looking at a lot of different places in the Word of God this morning, but we're going to begin 2 Timothy. So if you'll start there, 2 Timothy chapter 3, before I begin to read anything, kind of just give you a little background as to where we're at today and why we're about to do what we're about to do. It is with great heaviness in my heart that I come to deliver this message to you today because I understand the implications of what I'm going to say today and have a tendency to frustrate, to discourage, or to outright make some of you angry with me and what I have to say. I did my part to try to avoid uh, this message today, but God wouldn't allow me to, to go away from it. It all started for me with a very simple email that I received back on October the 12th. Someone submitted uh, an email through our website with just one sentence. The sentence said, would be interested in knowing your views on playing Bethel music as worship in your church. A little bit about me. I, I, I like to try to operate with a zero inbox policy, whereas that means by the end of the week, I like to make sure that I have no emails in my inbox, that I've addressed everything, I've taken care of everything, I've replied or responded to, to what needs to be replied or responded to. But when I got that, I, I, I read that, and I was like, what? Wait, what? What, what, what? What's the question behind the statement? Because I, I really wasn't informed uh, on a lot of, of details. So for the past couple of weeks, I've been immersing myself in research and discovering some things that I'm just not comfortable with. Now that I know the things that I know, we can no longer accept some of the things that we've been doing, and we need to make a change. This morning, I want to talk about the reason why we need to make a change and the purpose behind it. Like I said, I realize that there can be some resistance to the message today, and I'm okay with that. I'm going to do my best to, to give you the Word of God in this process, to show you in Scripture why I believe what it is that I believe, and if there's any opposition to that, I welcome you to show me in Scripture your point of view as well. We're going to go into this dialogue together, and we'll see the implications of it as this sermon kind of comes together. But I want to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you notice there, in the beginning of verse number 16, it says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Verse 17, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And that's a fundamental truth about the word of God. It teaches us the truth. It rebukes us in the error. It corrects us when we are wrong. And it gives us instruction to lead a righteous life. I want you to hold your place there because I'll get back there in a moment. But, but right now, just turn a couple pages to your left and, and look what it says in 1 Timothy. 
Oh, I love the sound of those pages. Amen. None of these verses are on the screen today, but they're all found in your Bible. They should be in your lap. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. It says, Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. Oh, we're living in that time. Turning away from true faith. Turning away from sound, biblical doctrine. And they're pursuing myths. And they're pursuing things that sound good and and feel good and, and seem religious, but are so wrong. It's just unbelievable. Well, let's keep going. Now go to your right. I'll try to direct you so you can get there quickly. Go to your right. Go to um, 1 John. 1 John uh, chapter 4. Still holding your place there in 2 Timothy. Don't, don't, don't let go of it. 1 John chapter 4. Verse number one says, Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the Spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. This is how we know if they have the Spirit of God. If a person claiming to be a prophet acknowledges that Jesus came in a real body, that person has the Spirit of God. But if someone claims to be a prophet and does not acknowledge the truth about Jesus, that person's not from God. Such a person has the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard is coming into the world and indeed is already here. So so we're told, test them. Put them to the test. Those that proclaim to speak or to deliver a word of God, put that to the test. So how do you test it? What's the measure that you use to test the teaching? You take all that they say about Jesus, all that they say about God, all that they say about grace, about redemption, about salvation. You lay that side by side with the Word of God, and it should be abundantly clear. And if it's not, absolutely, has no place. No place in our hearts, no place in our lives, because it's not true. It's not from the Spirit of God. It's from the Spirit of the Antichrist. Don't be a part of it. Well, there's more. Let's go. Let's go to Second Peter. Now go to your left. I'm going to direct you there. Second Peter, just a couple pages, chapter two. Beginning in verse one, but there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. Verse 3, in their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. And when you flip it through the channels, and you're stopping there, and you hear them, the person say, you want to grow in your faith? You want to experience a breakthrough in a bondage? Would you just show, sow a seed of faith? And how do you sow a seed of faith? Yeah, by giving them money. 
by giving them a little bit of money so that you can experience the breakthrough. That's what we're talking about here. In their greed, they'll make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Go back to where we began, 2 Timothy. Now we transition into verse number 4. I love this passage of Scripture because I came across this passage of Scripture uh, shortly after surrendering the, to the ministry. Uh, I was just a student in college at the time and feeling God's call to full-time ministry and, and surrendering my life to that, not really understanding what it means or what it's going to take or what, what it will look like as it plays out. But I came across this passage of Scripture early, and it was always a source of encouragement for me, and it is still today. Notice what it says beginning in verse uh, number 1 of chapter 4. I solemnly urge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Verse 2, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid for suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. One more passage of Scripture, if I may. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Then we're going to unpack the implication of all of this. Listen to the instructions given to us beginning in verse number 10. Ephesians 5.10 says, Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret, but their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper. Rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. The same spirit, the same heart, the same love that I have for you, I want you to know it's time to wake up, church. I warn you, be very careful to the music that you listen to. Be very careful from the albums that you, why did I say albums? How old am I? Be very careful from the music that you download and purchase and be very careful to the pastors or teachers that you listen to and follow or stream their podcast. Very careful for the books that you read. Just because a song is played on a Christian radio station doesn't mean it glorifies God. Just because you can find the resource in a Christian bookstore doesn't mean it actually belongs in that bookstore. Be very careful. Now, I, I realize that uh, with a message uh, like today, uh, there is uh, bound to be some uh, resentment 
some hesitation, some pushback. Uh, there's bound to be uh, certain criticisms that will arise. And so in light of that, I want to just uh, uh, address two of them. And these are two of the most often um, expressed criticisms when it goes to addressing false doctrine and false teachers. First of all, uh, the one pushback is often, judge not lest you be judged, pastor. Be very careful. Let he who is out sin cast the first stone. All those things are found in Scripture. It's often the misapplication of those things that get us in trouble. I want to show you what Jesus had to say when it came to the subject of judging others. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Because this is where the quote comes from. Judge not lest you be judged. Matthew chapter 7. If you're there, say I'm there. Some of you just said I'm there and you're turning your pages, so I'm on to you. I got it. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1 says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. Verse 2, For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrites. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Jesus does give us a warning about judging others. But the judging he's warning us about is the hypocritical kind of judging. He says, look, you want to deal with the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you've got a plank in your own You can't help that brother. Deal with yourself first. And then when you're in a right place, in a right position, then you can help your brother and sister deal with the speck that's in their eye. He's not saying don't judge. He said just don't be a hypocrite. To often quote verse number one, judge not lest you be judged, but we don't even make it to verse number six. Look at verse six. I'm reading out the New Living Translation. It says, don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Or another translation, don't give the sacred to, to dogs. Jesus says, don't give the sacred things to dogs. And then he says, don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Do you just catch what Jesus did? He identified some people as dogs and some people as pigs. And so in order to obey verse number 6, then we have to make some judgmental decisions about other people's character and conduct. We have to be able to know, look, don't waste what is holy on those that are outright rebellious and unholy. Be able to discern between, you know, is that person a dog or is that person a pig using the language of our Lord in the context of what he was saying. So it takes discernment to recognize Go all the way down. Look at verse number 15. You can see it right there. Verse number 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. 
So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Man, it takes discernment to recognize that's not a true sheep. That's a wolf dressed up in sheep's clothing. And in order to recognize false prophets and in order to be able to identify false teaching, then we must exercise discernment. That's, that's judgmental decisions and evaluations we must be willing to do. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. We live in a day and a time where, where tolerance is a dominant theme in our culture and in our churches. If you dare to confront or to expose sin, or if you uh, dare to label someone's teaching as being non-biblical, you'll be accused of being judgmental and unloving. I believe the Bible is clear that the pastor is the one that's being extremely unloving if they allow for wolves to affect their flock. If you allow sinning believers to infect the flock without confronting and exposing their sin. That is what is unloving. Listen to what the Scripture says in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. It says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. The Bible clearly teaches us that we must exercise biblical judgment and discernment. Let me show you one place in Scripture where it's so easy and clear to see. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now the pages are getting fewer and fewer that are turning. Come on, hang in there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In chapter 5, four verses, beginning in verse number 19. It says, Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies. But test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Five imperatives are given to us in these four verses. The first two are negative imperatives. You know, uh, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies. Those set the boundaries for the three positive, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good. Flee or run away or stay away from the things that are evil. So when it comes to to matters of doctrine, when it comes to the issue of theology, then we are to judge these matters, these things, within the biblical parameters that we have. And we must exercise judgment, discernment, evaluation, so that we know what we're receiving into our life is true and an accurate reflection of what God's Word has to say. So the first pushback is often, judge not lest you be judged. The second one is often, well, it's okay to expose false doctrine, but you kind of cross the line when you begin to expose false teachers. 
when you begin naming names. Oh, in a moment, I'm going to name some names. Some of you are going to be like, really? Because some of you are following the names that I'm going to mention. I'm going to tell you about these people out of my love and my concern for your spiritual development. When they say that you should expose the doctrine but without naming names, my first response is, man, did you even read the Bible? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some people have deliberately violated their consciences. As a result, their faith has been shipwrecked. General statement. Then verse 20. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're two examples. He just identifies them. Just calls them out. Exposes it in front of everyone. But that's not the only place. There's other places like 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2. Paul writes beginning in verse number 15. Work hard so that you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker. One who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. Avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer. All very general, generic. Then he says, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Just calls them out, two individuals. They've left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead had already occurred. In this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. I've heard people say, I can never confront another person about their sin. You know, he was out sin, cast the first stone. But I'm going to say, to dodge this difficult and responsibility, this difficult and loving responsibility, is the very opposite of love. And if you see a child running out into a street about to get hit by a car, I would think love would motivate you to yell, to do whatever is necessary to try to rescue that child, to protect that child from danger. So likewise, uh, we see a fellow believer that is following the the path, the dangerous path of dangerous teaching and heretical views, then love ought to motivate us to shout, to do whatever we can, to get their attention, to stay away from that danger. With that in mind, let's just rip off the band-aid. First and foremost, I warned you, be very, very careful. I would stay away from the teachings, from the writings, from the from the spiritual wisdom that is shared from Pope Francis. Now some of you are like, well, here we go. Stay away from it. It's not biblical. I can give you a list of reasons that cause me concern. I'll share with you one. Pope Francis himself said, we are living in a time when religious believers and people of goodwill everywhere since the need to grow in mutual understanding and respect and support each other as members of one human family. That sounds all good. I don't have any problem with that. Then he says, for all of us are children of God. And to make sure I'm not like just misunderstanding what he's saying or what he's trying to express, he also says many think differently, feel differently, seeking God or meeting God in different ways. In this crowd, in this range of religions, there is only one certainty that we have for all. We are all children 
of God. Let me tell you what, when the Pope says that we are all children of God, he does not reveal the truth of Scriptural. He only reveals his ignorance of the Word of God. This is what Scripture says. For those of you that are already resisting and already pushing back, this is what the Word of God says. John chapter 1, verse number 10. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So who are the children of God? Those that believe and accept him. It says they are reborn, not with a physical birth, but a, a birth that comes from God. Then it says in 1 John chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. Who are the children of God? Those that are born into God's family. How are you born into God's family? By believing and accepting Jesus Christ into your life. It says, so now we can tell who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously, does not love other believers, does not belong to God. There are two classes of humanity, the child of God and the child of the devil. If you don't have your faith, your belief rooted in the Son of God, then you belong to the devil. You're his kid, not God's. Stay away from that teaching. It sounds religious, but it is not biblical. I warn you. Here we go. Stay away from the teachings, the decorations, the preaching, the books from people like Joel Osteen. Stay away from Bishop T.D. Jakes. It's heresy that comes out of his mouth. Stay away from Joyce Myers. Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Benny Hinn, Brian Houston of Hillsong, Bill Johnson of Bethel. I'll come back to those guys in a moment. Stay away from Jen Hatmaker. She's a false teacher. She doesn't believe in the biblical view of marriage, the biblical view of sexuality. Don't follow her. Stay away from Sarah Young. That whole Jesus calling devotional stuff. It ain't worth the piece of paper it's printed on. She literally says, like if you research it, she literally says in her introduction, I know that God's word is sufficient for me, but I long for more. It wasn't enough. And because it wasn't enough, I wanted God's personal revelation for me. So I found myself a quiet place with pen and paper in hand, and I began to write down the direct revelation of God to me. That's how Joseph Smith started the whole Mormonism. Isn't it interesting that her direct revelation that Jesus had to say to her has now been published and sold billions? I thought that was just for you, Sarah. On August 23rd of her book, she's talking about be careful. It's a daily devotion, so devotion goes to August 23rd, and she talks about be careful of idolizing your children, and I would agree with that. 
But in her original book, it's been rewritten since then, she uses the story of Abraham and Isaac as her an example. And she accused uh, Abraham of having um, uncontrolled emotions, practicing sun worship and idolatry. None of these things are mentioned in the Bible. But what's interesting is if you go and buy a current edition of it today, August 23rd has nothing to do with Abraham and Isaac. And it has everything to do with the whole different story, characters in the Bible. So, which makes me wonder, wait, Jesus did a self-correct in his insight and wisdom? Jesus doesn't make mistakes. He's the author of truth. There's so many things, like stay away from that. I don't care if it's a Christian bestseller. I think right now it's like number five on the Christian devotions and, and, and bestselling. It's garbage. You don't need to be filling your mind with it. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Joseph Prince, stay away from him. Fred Price, Creflo Dollar. Oh, I'm going to be nice. Todd White is another one. Rob Bell and Oprah Winfrey, whatever tour that they're on together. She literally says that there's millions of different paths to get to God. And what you call Jesus is good for you, but all that matters is that you're faithful and true on whatever path that you're on. We all end up in the same place. It's just garbage. Stay away from this stuff. But it's not just the pastors or the teachers that we listen to. It's also found in the music that we listen to as well. To which that question was posed to me. So in light of that, making the decision that right now we as a church will no longer uh, sing songs from Bethel, from Bethel Collective, from Hillsong, from Hillsong United. We're not singing songs from Jesus Culture. We're not singing songs from Jeremy Riddle, from Corey Asbury, and a list of 15 or 16 other different artists. So why are we taking this position? Why are we no longer singing their music? Why are we no longer going to be doing that? Because they align themselves with or they come from churches that are theologically problematic, if not outright heretical. It's like you got to be careful. You can't just pull the good that's in those songs and say, it's okay for us just to sing the good stuff and and, and avoid the, the other stuff. That's not how it works. You do realize, or maybe you don't, when you purchase an album from them or when their church sings a song of theirs that we are financially supporting their ministries. So when this church, this church, in order to be able to, to play music that is copyrighted, we have to purchase on an annual basis something that's called the CCLI. It's a license. It gives you permission to uh, sing copyrighted music. And then you turn in songs, a list of songs, and how many times you sing them, you have to report this kind of stuff. And so what happens is each church that pays a license fee, and then when they collect all the data and information, then those uh, artists or those groups uh, receive compensation based upon the number of times their song gets sung in a number of churches. So when we sing one of their songs, we become financially contributors of their 
churches that they come from. And there's where the problem comes in. Told you I'd come back to him, and so let's just camp out here for a moment. I'll start with Brian Houston of Hillsong and Hillsong United. Hillsong Church is a Pentecostal megachurch that's affiliated within the Australian Christian churches. It is the Australian branch of the Assemblies of God. And part of their doctrinal belief is that of the prosperity gospel. This quote comes directly from Hillsong's website. It says, we believe that God wants to heal and transform us so that we can live healthy and blessed lives in order to help others more effectively. And this falls in line with the teaching that God always wills to heal. And that blessed equals healthy, that's the prosperity gospel, which adds that God's desire is to enrich you financially. And just to make sure you don't think I'm stretching or, or you know, grabbing at a straws just from one line from their website, let me read to you a direct, a direct quote from their pastor. He published a book. Uh, this book was published many years ago, but the name of the book ought to get our attention. You Need More Money. It's his book. In his book, You Need More Money, on page number eight, Brian Houston says, we, we have to become comfortable with wealth. And break the bondage, guilt, and condemnation of impoverished thinking. Poverty is definitely not God's will for his people. In fact, he promises, his promises talk of blessing and prosperity. Say that the poverty, I'm sorry, the prosperity gospel is either a perversion of the true gospel or it falls so far off course it is another gospel completely either way it has no place in the church and ought to have no place in the life of a true christian in their biblical worldview. let me read to you what paul says and he gives a warning to timothy in fact i want you to see it for yourself turn with me to first timothy chapter six i know some of you are done listening to me you've checked out i get it just thank you for not walking out that would be a distraction. Draw a picture in your bulletin. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what Paul says. Beginning in um, verse number 2, the very end of verse number 2, teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey. Some people may uh, contradict our teaching, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. Um, These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, uh, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Verse 6, yet true godliness is with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich 
fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Then it says in verse 10, for the love of money, not money in and of itself, it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrow. Paul also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I hope that you'll put up a little more with my foolishness. Please bear with me. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God Himself. I promised you a pure bride to one husband, Christ. Then he says in verse number 3, But I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent, verse 4, you happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, even if they preach a different kind of spirit than the one that you've received, and even if they preach a different kind of gospel than the one you believed. Brian Houston, in the whole prosperity gospel pursuit and doctrine, is corrupt, is unbiblical, and you should stay away from it. We get to the matter of Bethel, and their pastor, Ben Johnson. This is a little bit more weird at times. I didn't know much about their ministry and what they do and how they're organized and the school that they have in order to train other prophets and, and healers and, and whatnot. But they, Bethel, the leadership, practices, promotes, endorses, I don't really know which one is the right word, but something that's been referred to as grave-sucking. Other words are grave-soaking or mantle passing. Some of you never even heard of this before, nor did I. This is what it is. It's the practice is based upon the idea that the spiritual calling of an individual who has died may be reclaimed by somebody else. The theory is that God uses the Holy Spirit to anoint certain believers with a specific purpose, such as healing or prophecy. But when that person dies, the work of God has been thwarted. Thus, the Holy Spirit is wasted. It's lying upon the bones and unable to continue the calling. And so this unrecovered, that's how they phrase it, the unrecovered anointing is apparently available to anyone who would physically come and claim it for themselves. Some people have said, oh, it's just an inside joke. It's not really serious. It's, it's something that's just taking out of context. I've seen that argument. I've heard that argument. But this isn't taking it out of context. Take a look at this picture. There we go. That's the pastor's wife, Benny Johnson. She's in Oxford. She's currently lying at the tomb in that picture of C.S. Lewis soaking it up, trying to get the residual anointing that's contained within that grave. 
You can't really see it from there. I get it. But the little comments on the side become evident that this is a practice of teaching that exists among them when they say, uh, grab some for me. Grab some for me too. Wow. Then the next one. So it's not an isolated incident. There's the picture of her hugging onto the tombstone of Charles Finney, trying to soak in his anointing. If you need further evidence, I don't know why you would, but just in case if you do, Bill Johnson himself wrote the book called The Physics of Heaven. And in chapter 4 he says this, There are anointings, mantles, revelations, and mysteries that have laid unclaimed literally where they were left because the generation that walked in them never passed them on. I believe it's possible for us to recover realms of anointing, realms of insight, then he says realms of God that have been untended for decades simply by choosing to reclaim them and perpetuate them for future generations. And that's that's superstitious practice is is blatantly it, it's it's supersti- it's, it's superstition it, it's unbiblical it's crazy. There's nowhere in Scripture that teaches this. Stay away from it. And they also promote something that's called the kenosis theory. Oh, this is problematic too. This is a whole nother gospel. This is the warning that we read in 1 John chapter 4, verse number 3. If they don't teach the truth about Jesus, then it's not from God. It's from the spirit of the Antichrist. The kenosis theory goes like this, that Jesus, when he left heaven to come to earth, abandoned his deity in heaven. So that when he was on earth, he was on earth 100% man, and that's it. And they base that on on Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me read that for you real quick. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And verse 7 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. They they pick up on the phrase, emptied himself. And that's what they say. They say that he left his divine attributes in heaven when he emptied himself. But that's not what this verse is talking about. This verse doesn't talk anything about his divine attributes. This verse is talking about the humility of our Lord when he abandoned the praise and worship of heaven to enter into our mess and our muck here on earth. It's talking about his humility. And the kenosis theory is dangerous because if you believe that Jesus was only a man, then the logic goes Jesus was able to perform the miracles and raise the dead because he was a man walking in right relationship with God. And if you, being a man, are also walking in a right relationship with God, then you can do those miracles too, and we can train you how to do them. If the kenosis theory is correct... And it's not. Then it would mean that Jesus was not fully divine. And if Jesus was not fully divine, then the atoning work that was accomplished on the cross 
would not be sufficient to atone for the sins of the world. The proper view is the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the belief that teaches us that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Jesus said himself in John chapter 10, verse number 30, he said, I and the Father are one. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and a high-sounding nonsense that came from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in the human body. It says it there, too. So you also are complete through your union with Christ who was the head over every ruler and authority. I mean, these are just a few reasons that should give us pause for concern. Each time we gather to worship, we gather, there are two messages that get proclaimed. There's the message that we preach and teach through the songs that we sing, and then there's the message that we preach and teach through the word that we give. Make no mistake, doctrine matters. Proper theology is important. And if we're not going to quote their pastors, quote their leaders, teach their theology, then why in the world are we going to sing their songs? It's deceptive. It's not worth it. And let me be quick so you don't leave here thinking, yeah, way to go, way to attack all that contemporary garbage that's out there today. Let me tell you, those little pews, that, those little hymnals, that are in that pew right in front of you, those are problematic too. It's not just current contemporary music that causes problems with theology and doctrine. There are some hymns in those hymnals that we ought not be partaking and singing of that too. Because it's not true and it's not accurate and it's not a, a true reflection of the Word of God. Don't worry, we're going to adjust that too. We're going to work in getting the, the right kind of hymnals so it's a the right kind of, of, of hymns that support our theological position as a church. So in light of Scripture, make no mistake that dangerous doctrine should be silenced, not supported. And it matters what we do and how we do it. And so we will take all the steps that are necessary in order to make sure that the proper theology is taught and that improper or false theology is identified and corrected as well. So how do you know the difference? You know, how do, like you pass it, that seems like a lot of work. There's a lot of music that I've been singing and I listen to that sounds good, and now, now you're saying that I need to take extra steps, and how am I supposed to know? What am I supposed to do? Let me tell you this. The way you identify a counterfeit is by knowing the original. Don't immerse yourself in trying to discover all the counterfeit theology that is out there. Don't try to discover all the false doctrine that exists. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Study the true thing so that when you see something that's contrary to what's true, then you'll be able to say, that ain't right. That's wrong. It sounds good. It feels good. But it ain't right. Love the Word of God. Immerse yourself in God's Word. We encourage you to take the time today, this week, to, to immerse yourself in Psalm 119. Go ahead and turn there real quick. Last passage.
Longest chapter in the Bible. 176 verses. Broken down into 26 different stanzas. Each stanza begins with a different Hebrew letter. You have to read this in Hebrew to see it and understand it. But this was a learning tool. We took each letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and each stanza represented the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, so that each verse and each stanza began with the letter that came from that section. So like this first section for us, we'd like saying it, it's A. So verses 1 through 6, I mean verses 1 through 8, all those verses would have began with the letter A. And then the next section would begin with the next letter. That's how it was written. The prominent theme of Psalm 119 is that the word of God is sufficient. Let me read through some of this with you. Not all of it, just some. It says, joyful are the people of integrity. Verse 1, who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey its laws and search for Him with all their hearts. Verse 4, you have charges to keep your commandments carefully. you got to understand when he's saying law, commandments, decrees, it's all talking about the Scriptures. Okay? So he says, uh, you have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Uh, then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. I wonder how many of us can say that today. When I compare my life to your word, that I would not be ashamed. Verse number 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 24, your law your laws please me. They give me wise advice. Uh, verse 35. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Where is the happiness found? Walking in the path of God's Word. That's how you have a happy life. Well, Joel writes that book. Oh, be quiet, David. Your best life now the only way this can be your best life now is if you're going to hell when you die. For the believer, no matter how bad it is, it's as bad as the love of me. Everything is eternally glory after that. But for the non-believer, this is as good as it will ever get. Anyway. 37, turn my eyes from worthless things and give me life through your word. Verse 47, how I delight in your commands, how I love them. I honor and love your commands. I meditate on your decree, decrees. Verse 54, your decrees have been my theme or the theme of my songs wherever I have lived. I reflect that night on who you are, O oh Lord, therefore I obey your instructions. This is how I spend my life, obeying your commandments. Man, this is how I spend my life. Wouldn't it be a great testimony of us all? If we would embrace that, I spend my life obeying your word. Verse 66, I believe in your commands. Now teach me good judgment and knowledge. I used to wander off until you disciplined me, but now I closely follow your word. Verse 72, your instructions are more valuable to me than millions in gold and silver. Ooh, how many of you can agree with verse number 81? I am worn out waiting for your rescue but I've put my hope in your word. All your commands are trustworthy. Verse 86, protect me from those who hunt me down without cause. 
Verse 89, your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. Your faithfulness extends to every generation. As enduring as the earth you created, your regulations remain true to this day, for everything serves your plans. Oh, verse 103, how sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Oh, a few more. Verse 129. Your laws are wonderful. No wonder I obey them. The teaching of your word gives light so even the simple, like me, can understand. Verse 140. Your promises have been thoroughly tested. That is why I love them so much. 144. Your laws are always right. Help me to understand them so I may live. 149, in your faithful love, O Lord, hear my cry. Let me be revived by following your regulations. A couple more. Let's do 160. Look at that. The very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. Verse number 174, O Lord, I have longed for your rescue, and your instructions are my delight. Let me live so I can praise you, and may your regulations help me. May we live to praise God, and may the Word of God help us to understand what that means and how that looks. Let us be very good students of the Word of God. Let us be very careful exercise great discernment in what we take in with our lives. The music we listen to, the people we listen to, the books and the devotions that we read, be very, very careful. No invitation. My challenge for you today, church, is to exercise great caution. For those that have checked out a long time ago, may you know I say this to you because I love you. I want what's best for you. I want you to pursue the truth because the truth is life-giving. Freedom is found in and through a relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With that being said, let's pray.